The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Ephesians chapter number four. Thank you so much for worshiping with us here this morning. We're continuing our series going verse by verse through the portion of the Bible called Ephesians and our message series entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? Looking specifically at our identity in Christ. Who does God say that we are? Uh, if you should have received a service program guide on your way in, go ahead and take that out. That'll be a help as we study the Word of God together this morning. Ephesians chapter number 4, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning. Ephesians chapter number 4, we're halfway through the book. I'm excited about the remainder of the series, seeing what God and who God says we are. Ephesians chapter number 4, beginning of verse number 1, the Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This morning, pastor is going to bring a message simply entitled, We Are Unified hard to believe we are officially halfway through our verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. And uh, just to give you a recap, Ephesians chapter number one, chapters number two, and chapters number three really deal with what God did for us. Uh, Theologians would refer to this as the indicatives of theology or the indicatives of the gospel. That is what God has done for me. And literally for three chapters, the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the believers at Ephesus, this is what God has blessed you with. This is the inheritance that God has given to you. Uh, This is the blessing and the goodness that he's bestowed upon you. And literally for three chapters, we have seen what God has done for us. Now, Something interesting happens as we segue into chapters number four, chapters number five, and chapters number six of Ephesians. You're going to see here the Apostle Paul transitions from talking about what God has done for us, and now over the next three chapters, he's going to define not what God wants to do for us, but now he's going to teach us what God wants to do through us. So chapters number four, the Apostle Paul's going to teach us about what God wants to do through us in our church. In chapters number five, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us about what God wants to do through us in our homes, in our marriages, with our children. And then in chapters number six, the Apostle Paul is going to teach us what God wants to do through us in our workplaces and in our everyday lives. And so there's a big transition happening here from chapters number three to chapters number four. And today we're going to bring a message simply entitled, We Are Unified. Uh, As the Apostle Paul is transitioning from what God did for us to what now God wants to do through us, he starts by focusing in on his local church. And throughout the chapter 4, he is going to help us understand as believers how the Spirit of God is going to manifest himself through us with other believers within our local congregation. And so that's where we find ourselves here today. And he kicks it off by talking about unity. How do we as believers live in unity? 
Uh, I think if we were to be honest one with another, we've all had times where we struggled uh, to live in unity one with another. How many of you would be honest enough to say, maybe you're here and uh, you're married or been married, and there were seasons in your marriage, there have been seasons in your marriage, where you struggled to live in unity in your marriage? Anybody like that whatsoever? All right, there's a couple of you that are willing to be honest here. Most of them, no, are always, we're always unified, right? And uh, we've all had those seasons, we've all had those times. H- how many of you, maybe this would be a little bit easier since your spouse might not be sitting next to you. How many of you would say there have been times in my life where I've struggled to live in unity with my extended family, a mother-in-law, you know, something along those lines, all right? You you, you say, okay, I've been there. I've struggled to live in unity there. I I think all of us have had times where we've struggled to live in unity, maybe at a workplace. How many of you have that, that, that person you work with and you literally believe the only reason they're there is to make your life miserable. How many of you like that? I don't know what all the Ambassador Baptist Church staff are doing raising their hand. No. <laughs> like, yeah, you pastor. No. I think if we were to be transparent and we were to be honest, all of us have had seasons where we've struggled to live in unity one with another. And now here's what gets really crazy. <laughs> within the church body, within the local church, People, believers, and Christians struggle to live in unity one with another. And so this is where the Apostle Paul starts. He doesn't start with talking about living in unity with your your spouse. He doesn't start by talking about living in unity necessarily with co-workers. He starts with speaking to the local church because the local church is a greenhouse where we are to exercise the spiritual dif- disciplines of living in unity and in community one with another. And that's exactly what these six verses have to do with. So I want you to just dive in. Chapter number four, notice the first two words. He says, I therefore. Now, if you have a pen, I want you to underline that little word, therefore. Uh, when I was in seminary in Bible college, our professors would always make a little statement, and they would say this. Whenever you see a therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. Okay, why, why is that word there? So here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's literally saying, therefore, because of all that God has done for you, because of all that Christ has done in you, because of the fact you've been blessed, because of the fact you've been chosen, because of the fact you've been elected, because of the fact you've been given an inheritance, because of the fact that these spiritual realities are not just going to happen, but they are happening, the fact that you are a new creature in Christ, he says, therefore, because of everything God has done for you, because of everything Christ has done in you, therefore, now it's going to get real. Now it's going to get practical. Now it's going to start to flesh itself out in our daily lives. And he says, therefore, he says this, he says, therefore, I beseech you to walk worthy of the vocation where you're called. What is he beseeching us? Notice verse three, that ye endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so this is where he's going to start it out. Therefore, Because God was willing to make peace with you through his son, Jesus Christ, even when you were in your sin, even when you were living in rebellion, even when you wanted nothing to do with God, he sent his son to this earth so he could make peace with you. 
so he could pull you out out of the miry clay. And because God was willing to step down and there literally reach us and and provide for us salvation and reconciliation and peace, he says, therefore, I want you to become ministers of reconciliation, ministers of peace, and I want to to encourage you to endeavor to keep the peace. Now, notice this phrase, very interesting in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to, here's the word, make unity. Is that what it says? Huh, this is interesting. It says, endeavoring to create unity. Is that what it says? No. It says here, I want you to see this, endeavoring to keep the unity. This is very important. Here's why. Never once in the Bible are we actually told to create unity. Study it out. Look at it for yourselves. There's never a place where God says, I want you to make unity. I want you to create unity with your spouse. I want you to create unity with your coworkers. I want you to create unity here with your church family. When it's in the context of speaking to other believers, God never tells us to create this unity. He says, I want you to keep it. I want you to maintain the unity that is already yours in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is really big. This is really important. Because if you have a paradigm, a perspective that says, no, I've got to create unity with that person on the other side of the row. I've got to, I've got to conjure up unity. I've got to make myself, you're going to miss the point. The Bible is declaring for believers in Christ, those who have committed their lives to Jesus and are saved, the Bible says in Christ there is unity. The question is whether or not it's being kept. But authentically, it is there. So, I want you to see, first of all, here in our notes today, I want you to notice, we're going to see in verses number four through six, the essence of our unity. If you're taking notes using our service program, we're going to notice here in verses number four, verses number five, and verses number six, literally the essence of our unity, or maybe what we might say the basis of our unity. What is unity built around? First John chapter number one, verse seven says it this way, if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So fellowship, unity, automatically happens when we are walking here in the light. And so here we're going to see in this passage the essence of our unity. Notice verse number four. Okay? He's literally in this passage, according to these verses, there are seven theological realities that each of us who are believers already share in Christ. These aren't something we have to work toward. These aren't something we have to conjure up. These aren't things that we have to manufacture. No, God is saying these things you already share. If you are in Christ and they are in Christ, if you are a believer and they are a believer, if you are a Christian and they're a Christian, these are seven theological realities that become the basis of your fellowship, the basis of your unity that you already have whether you realize it or not. Notice verse number four. He says, there is one body. Keep reading. He says, and one spirit, even as you're called in the hope of your calling. Notice this. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So notice how many times that word one, there's one, there's, there's already unity here. And so the apostle Paul is trying to create the foundation of our unity. What is the basis of our unity? One body. Can I say this? You can't hurt a member of the body without hurting yourself. Why? Because we're one. 
We're, we're together. We're one in Christ. We are one body. How many of you, you've stubbed your toe before and your whole body just aches? You realize that when a, par, a member of the body gets hurt, it hurts the whole body. We are one, whether we want to realize it or not. We're one body. But notice this, there is one spirit. Can I say this? If you're a believer and that other person's a believer, if they've committed their lives to Christ, you both are indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. One body, one spirit. He goes on to say, and there is one body, one spirit, and you're called in one hope. There's one hope. There's only one, that hope of eternity in heaven. I hate to break it to you, but that person who really bugs you, that person who kind of just gets under your skin sometimes and they're down the row or they're across the church, I I don't know how to break this to you, but you're actually going to have to spend all of eternity with them (laughs) for like the rest of forever. This is a good time to get used to it. (laughs) This might be a good time to figure out how to get along. Because like the forever of forever, you're together. Because why? We have one hope, the hope of heaven, eternal life. It's one, one Lord. The word Lord literally means master or the one in control. Do you realize that in Christ, those of us who are believers, those of us that are in Christ, we all have the same master? We have the same one leading us, the same one who's in sovereign control, one faith. I know this is controversial in the day and age in which we live, but there's only one faith. Only one. There's only one way to heaven, regardless of what Oprah tries to tell us. One, Jesus said it. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. You see, that's pretty narrow. Yes, it's about as narrow as this book. There's one faith. In in the pluralistic society that we live in that tries to convince us, well, there are many paths to heaven and there are many paths to God and you choose one path and I choose another and we all kind of try to make our way to God. Can I say this? That's religion. It's not biblical. God says, no, there's not many paths. There's one God on the top of that hill and he came down to get you. Not a path that you've got to work your way up to get to him. That's salvation. That is the one faith. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you didn't know that God came to this earth in the flesh, died on a cross for your penalty, for your sin, and then three days later rose from the dead, then I'm here to tell you there is an offering of salvation given to you, and God wants you to be saved. He wants you to receive that one faith, one faith. There's really only two two religions in the world. There's the religions that say is do and then there are those religions that say done it's done and you know what christianity says it's finished jesus on the cross said to telestai it is finished one baptism literally to say there's this baptism represents the death the burial and the resurrection of jesus christ And he says, there's one type of baptism. And then notice this, there is one God. Not many gods with different faces, one God. And I realize as we continue in our humanistic society, that is going to become less and less popular. But that is what the Bible teaches. This is the essence of our unity. This is the basis of our unity. Now let me park it here for a moment. Anybody else struggling with allergies right now? Or is it just me? 
Okay, so you're gonna have to bear with me a little bit. I, I feel fine, I think, uh, but then all of a sudden I just can't talk, and so, uh, which is normally a uh, good thing for my wife, but uh, for you today it might not be so great. So here's what this passage is teaching. The Apostle Paul is saying, these are the pillars that our unity is actually built on. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Now, here's what's crazy. Notice what is not on this list. Because in a lot of churches, we want to make our fellowship around something else. And this is why churches divide. This is why marriages divide. This is why friends divide. Because they want to make the basis of their unity something else. They want to make the basis of their unity about something lesser than these things. And depending on who you're with or depending on where you're going, you're going to find that there are different things that people want to build their unity and fellowship around. I, I know some people, and they're like, yeah, 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 I get all this, but I, I, I can only fellowship with people who have certain musical preferences. And that's what I'm going to build my, my fellowship around and my unity around. Or other people, I, I want to build my fellowship and unity around people who have uh, similar fashion preferences that I do and certain dress preferences that I do. Or oh, there's other people, I, I like to build my fellowship and unity around this preference or that preference. Or uh, in, in marriages, you know, we want, to, we want to build our camaraderie and our unity around the similar personality. She's got she's to act just like I want her to act and he He's got to behave just like I want her to behave. And, and there's all these lesser things that we try to make the basis for our unity, that we try to make the basis for our fellowship. But I'm going to say this. These are peripheral things. They are secondary things. And they will disrupt the unity and fellowship of a church, of a family, of a marriage, of a group of believers Nine times out of ten, when we stop getting our eyes off of the basis of our fellowship, the basis of our unity, and we make the basis and the essence of our unity about something smaller, something more peripheral than what God says our unity should be around. And so it's really easy to do. I, I, I want my unity to be based around this. I want my fellowship to be based around that. And so rather than looking at God's essence, God's basis for unity, we look to a hundred things smaller than what God declares to be the basis for whether or not we'll have unity with somebody. So as ladies, we, we look for somebody who, who acts a certain way, who who treats us a certain way, because that's the basis for unity, right? How I'm treated. Maybe not. The basis for our unity can be a, a million things lesser than this, but can I say this? In Christ, this is the essence for our unity. A.W. Tozier, the uh, theologian of the 20th century, said this. We have a piano up here, and he used the piano as a metaphor. Uh, every about six months, we have a piano tuner come in and tune this piano. And he, he brings out what's called a, a piano tuning fork, and he makes sure that each note is matching with the sound of that tuning fork. And here's what A.W. Tozier said. If 100 pianos are all tuned to the same tuning fork, they will automatically be tuned to each other. 
So in the metaphor, God is the tuning fork. We are the pianos. Rather than trying to get into harmony with each other, we need to get into harmony with God and then naturally we'll fall into harmony one with another. It's the byproduct, not the prime product. The goal is not unity with each other. The goal is Jesus Christ. The goal is allowing his word and Christ to live his life through us. And all of a sudden, unity becomes the fruit of what automatically happens. This, this takes place in a marriage. I've seen so many marriages struggle to like come to unity. And I'm here to say this. You focus on Christ. Tune your life to him and you'll see Christ bring your lives together. That's what A.W. Tozier was saying here. So we see the essence of our unity is these theological realities, not something less than this, not something smaller than this. And there's a lot of Christians, and every one of us agree with every one of these things, but most of us, because of our personality, want to add two or three more things to this list. What is it for you? What is it that you want to add to this list to be the basis of your fellowship because we all have them we all have preferences we all have things that we desire every one of you if you to be very transparent with yourself there's about two more things you wish god would have added to that list and those are the areas you have to be extremely careful in because those are the areas you're liable to become self-righteous in that's where pride seeps in it's in those areas that we want to add to god's word and say no i, I think those are good bases but i think there should be a couple things more be careful of those things. So now, we see the essence of our unity, but let's keep moving on. He says this, I beseech, therefore, because of everything God has done for you, because of what Christ has done in you, therefore, because of that, let's keep that in mind, this is not just conjuring it up on our own in our own willpower, but because of what Christ has blessed you with, with what God has done for you, he says this, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How are we gonna do this? This leads us to our second thought this morning as we kind of move through our study today. Not only do we see the essence of our unity, secondly, I want you to see this, the expressions of our unity. So when we really believe that God has blessed us and we're convinced of it, when we are totally convinced that there is one Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and that theological reality has gripped us to our soul, there are going to be natural expressions, not something we're trying to work out, but this is what happens in the life, this is what happens in the heart of an individual who really believes that God has blessed them wonderfully and gloriously. These are expressions. Notice what you're going to see in verse number two. A couple of expressions. Lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing or forbearance, and love. You see that in verses number two, okay? These are now the expressions of our unity. So let's take a moment and let's kind of unpack each and every one of these terms because a lot of these words we don't use in the 21st century anymore. And even as I was reading them, you didn't have a lot of context for their understanding as to what these things mean. So I'm going to define them real quickly and then we'll kind of wrap this up. What's the word lowliness, all right? What does this mean? If you want to write this down, lowliness means taking the posture of a servant. Lowliness means taking the posture of a servant. So, if we're truly unified, if we truly believe God has blessed me and everything God has done for me, and look at everything that Christ has done in me, and we really believe it deep down in our soul, 
and we believe that, man, there's one God and one Lord and one spirit and one faith and one baptism, those are the essence and those are the basis for our unity, then what's going to flow out of our lives? Lowliness. This is the mark of a believer who really understands the gospel. They're lowly. You say, what does that mean? They take the posture of a servant. This is how you know when somebody truly gets the gospel. They're always taking the posture of a servant. They're always taking on the spirit of a servant. There's a lowliness to them. The Bible says Jesus made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a ruler. (laughs) Is that what it says? No. It says he took upon him the form, the posture of a servant. That's what he did. This is why the Bible encourages us with this. It says, let each esteem others better than themselves. Literally what the Bible is saying, let each prefer others better than themselves. Do you realize that when you believe you are actually unified with the other people in this room and you believe it, not that you're going to become unified with them, not that you can work it up if you can make yourself good enough. No, when you believe what God says that you are unified in Christ, here's what happens. This is how you know. This is a mark and, and a, a revelation. How do I know if I really believe that we are unified? You will take on the posture of a servant. You will make yourself lowly. You'll make yourself a servant to those around you. Um, how many of you are familiar with the historic figure uh, Booker T. Washington? That's 1800. Some of you might be familiar with him. Uh, Booker T. Washington, from a historical standpoint, was the first university president in the United States of America. Uh, I should say this, the first black uh, university president in the United States of America back in the 1800s. Just a very well-educated man, uh, very, very just uh, uh, scholastic in his abilities, and, and he he uh, taught at a university, and on one occasion, he's walking through uh, his city, and there was a new uh, plantation owner, an elderly lady that had moved to the city down in the south, and she saw Booker T. Washington, and she called him out, come here, sir, thinking that he was one of the plantation slaves, and told him to cut all her firewood. He's a university president. You know what he does? He begins to pull off his coat and his jacket. He grabs the axe, and for the next hour, he literally begins to chop this woman's firewood. She said, thank you. He went on his way. A few weeks later, she had been invited to a ball, a party of sorts, and there was going to be a university president speaking, and she was really excited to hear about it. And she was sitting there at the dinner one day, and all of a sudden, the accolades of this president were announced, and they just, the MC just went on and on about all of his uh, credentials and just everything about him. And all of a sudden, out from behind the curtain walks Booker T. Washington, and that lady in that moment recognized exactly who that was, and she was just horrified. After the whole speech was over, she ran up to him and she said, I am so, so sorry. I had no, no idea who you were. And you know what? Booker T. Washington was so gracious. He simply said, the true test of a servant is how you respond when you get treated like one. The true test is not whether or not you serve. Because there are a lot of people who serve who do not have a servant's spirit. It's a big difference. You serve when it makes you look good. You serve when it makes you feel good. 
You serve when it's convenient. You serve when it can bolster your agenda. You serve when it's comfortable. But the true test of a servant is how you respond when you actually get treated like one. And Booker T. Washington understood what it meant to live a lowly lifestyle. See, what Christ is saying is when you understand that God has made peace with you, just like Jesus made himself of no reputation, what's going to happen in your heart is you're going to start making yourself of no reputation. You're going to take on a lowly spirit, a servant's spirit. And so now it's not just that you serve, it's that you have a spirit that is lowly. Not looking for accolades or a pat on the back. Not looking for people to notice you. You don't care if you're noticed or not because you're now allowing Christ's spirit to live through you. This is what happens when people actually believe that there is already unity among them. So when this person over here really believes that they already have unity with this person over here, the way it manifests itself is through lowliness. Taking on the posture of a servant. Taking on that servant spirit. But notice the next word, meekness. With all lowliness and meekness. You say, what does meekness mean? The word meek simply means strength under control. If you want to jot that down, meek means strength under control. Uh, Back in the 1800s, they used to have these big Clydesdale horses. All right, big beasts of a thing. And when they were training these horses, the old farmers would use a term. When that horse had been tamed, when that horse was useful, when that horse would come under the bridle, they would use the word, they would say back in the 1800s, that horse has been meeked. What were they saying? They're saying that his strength was now under the control of something else. And so that's what this passage is teaching. The apostle Paul is saying, when you lady over here believe that you have unity with that lady, here's what it's going to produce in your life. Here's how it's going to manifest itself. It's going to manifest itself with meekness. Your strength will be under control. See, some of you have strengths with your words. You know how to say something very quick. You know how to say something really sharp. You're just, you, you have a lot of strength with how you can utilize your words. And yet that tongue is not under control. It's not been meeked. You say, what does this mean? It means this. See, when you're meek, it means you could retaliate when somebody does you wrong. You have the power to do it, but you don't. It means you could win an argument because you have the intellectual prowessness to make that a reality, but you don't. It means you could make the other person feel awful for what they did because you have some inside information, but you don't. It means you, you could, uh, you, know, uh, you know, take revenge on what somebody else did, but you don't. Uh, you, you could say, I told you so, but you don't. You see, somebody who is meek, they could say, they could do, they could prove that they're superior in some way. They could, you know, Convince the other person that they're superior over them. And and husbands and wives will do this a lot. Spouses will do this trying to one-up the other person and reveal and show how they're actually better than, than them in this particular area. It means that you could technically do that, but a meek person doesn't because their strength is under the control of someone else. Their strength is under the control of the Spirit of God. Christ now is their Lord. And so the result of that now manifests itself in meekness. Here's the next word, 
long-suffering. You see it right there in the text. Verse number two, long-suffering. You see, a person who actually believes that they already have unity with their spouse in Christ, a person who honestly believes that God has already given them so much and blessed them with so much that there's nothing they could give to lose what God has ultimately given. Somebody who really honestly believes that deep down inside, one of the ways you're going to know it is because their life propagates, their life manifests a long-suffering. You say, what does long-suffering mean? Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure this one out. Does anybody want to take a big leap of faith and guess what long-suffering means? Yeah, there you go. I heard it from a couple places. It means to suffer for a long time. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, that is often referred to as the love chapter defining what love really is, uses this term to define true agape love. True agape love is suffers long. Can I say this? When you actually believe that you already have unity with somebody, the way that manifests itself in your daily life, in your functional living, is it causes you to suffer long doing things you don't like to do. This is how unity propagates itself, is because you find yourself in a situation you don't like, a situation that makes you uncomfortable, a situation that's a little bit painful and out of unity and out of love, you are willing to suffer long. This is what makes marriages work because you go through seasons of long suffering. This is how you know whether or not unity is authentically taking place. Number four, let's look at the next word here. Forbearing one another. See that? Forbearing one another. All right, let me, if you want to take a note on this forbearance, here's what it means. A patient tolerance that keeps you from retaliation. A patient tolerance that keeps you from retaliation. Here's what the Apostle Paul's saying. If you really believe God has given you unity, if you really believe that your unity is based on one God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, you really believe that God has done something for you and God has done something through you, it's going to create a manifestation of forbearance. You are going to patiently be tolerant and it'll be a patient tolerance that keeps you from retaliation. Now, I'll even take it a step further. A retaliation that you could justify. See, some of you like, I, I, I know I could re- take revenge. They deserve it. I could justify my actions. Here's what forbearance says. It means you could justifiably retaliate, but you don't. See, this is what love does. This is how unity behaves. When you you really believe that you are unified with those around you, this is what happens through your life. This is how Christ lives through you. He lives lowly. He lives meek. He lives in a way that's long-suffering and forbearing. Notice lastly... In love, in love. You see that phrase, in love? Love, the word in the Greek is the word agape. It simply means motivated by another person's best interest. Um, we, we will sometimes in our day and age use the term unconditional love, and I think that kind of defines real well what agape means. It's this unconditional love. You see, when you really believe that you are living in unity with your spouse, when you really believe that you already have unity with that person you don't like across the pew, when you really believe that there is unity between you and that other brother in Christ and you and that other sister in Christ, when you really believe that, you're going to unconditionally love them you're going to serve them, you're going to be kind to them, even though rather than retaliating, you're going to look for ways to bless them. This is how you know 
when Christ is living his unified life through you. When you really believe that what God says is true, that you are unified, this is what happens. Can I ask you this question? Do these marks exist in your life? Think about the person, that Christian, maybe in this room, who drives you nuts. Are these the responses that you have toward that person? Lowly? Meek? Are these your responses when your spouse drives you crazy? So you see what the Bible is saying here, when Christ is free and willing, when he's living his life through you and when you're allowing him to live his life through you and his spirit is now in control of your life, the Bible says this is what Christ does through you. And if this isn't what manifests through you, can I say this? The goal is not to be like, all right, bless God, I've got to be more long-suffering this week. I'm going to make myself do it. No, you need to spend more time with Jesus. You need to get more focused on what Jesus, the lowliness that he demonstrated when he came to this earth, the meekness, the strength under control when he went to the cross and yet he uttered not a word. Why? There was meekness. He was long-suffering there at Calvary as he bled and as he was whipped and as he was tortured. He forbear. He took, rather than retaliating and rather than taking revenge, he was patient patiently suffering and he did it because he loved you immensely you see if that doesn't exist in your life you need to get a fresh view of the cross you aren't seeing jesus clearly enough you're not preaching that gospel to yourself every day and that's why he's not living his life and expressing his life and manifesting his life through you can i say this the way you know it's of god is it's not self-righteous I know people who know how to put on airs of meekness and airs of long-suffering and airs of love. They're kind of like these religious, pious people, but deep down, they're self-righteous. Deep down, they think they're better than everybody else. Deep down, there's jealousy. Deep down, there's ulterior motives. Deep down, they know that they're better than that person and they're better than those people. And praise Jesus that I've got his grace. When it's self-righteous and when it's arrogant and when it's filled with proud, it's not Jesus. See, these are the manifestations of when Christ is living his life through you. This is, this is what we call the expressions of our unity. In the Gospel of John, chapter number 17, Jesus prayed five times that the disciples would be unified. That's pretty crazy for one chapter of the Bible. Five times Jesus prayed, Lord, help them to be unified. Now, you say, why did he pray five times? That's a whole lot of times to pray for unity. I think he knew we as his followers were going to have some problems with this. And so he prayed it one and again and again and again and again because he knew that we were going to struggle with unity in our marriages as believers. We were going to struggle with unity in our families as believers. We were going to even struggle in our churches with unity and fellowship as believers because there would not be these expressions of unity manifesting themselves from our life. And so he prayed. And can I say this? He prays for you. And even when you fail, and even when your life doesn't manifest forbearance and love and long-suffering, I want to say this. God loves you. Let that sink in and let it change your heart. 
to realize that God is willing to love you even when you fail at all of those things and when you don't allow his grace to work through you, he still loves you, he still forbears you, he still suffers long on your behalf, he still is meek toward you. Even when you're not meek toward others, he's meek toward you. And even when you don't forbear toward others, he forbears toward you. And even when you're not long-suffering toward others, he's long-suffering toward you. And let that reality change something deep inside of you. To recognize even at my worst, He does for me what he wants to do through me. What a wonderful reality. Someone once said, a house divided cannot stand, and a house united cannot fall. What is the basis of your fellowship and unity in your marriage? Well, as long as she can keep the weight off, we'll have unity. Well, as long as he can keep the money coming in, we'll have unity. Well, as long as he behaves the way I've told him he needs to behave, we'll have unity. No, here's what the Bible says. You you already have unity. If you're in Christ and they're in Christ, your unity is already set. The essence and basis of your unity has already been declared. The question is, if you believe it, will there be the manifestations, the expressions of this unity? See, according to the Bible... If you are in Christ, there is unity. It already exists. The real question is, are there regular expressions of that unity being lived out in your daily life? Those expressions of forbearance and love and patience and long-suffering. Because if those aren't being displayed toward those people that you find most frustrating, then you probably don't actually deep down believe that God has been forbearing and long-suffering and loving toward you, and you need to bask afresh and anew in the reality of the gospel of what God has done on your behalf. Do you behave and act and live like who God says we really are? That's the question. And then verse 6, and we're done. He says, God, the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You know how you can do this? You say, I could never do this. Forbear and long suffer and meek and I could never. You can't, but God in you can. And that's your great hope. That the God who is forbearing towards you wants to be forbearing through you. And the God who is long suffering to you wants to be long suffering through you. Because he is in you if you are a believer. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. And in that, there is hope. So how is it? Where do you need to see a greater manifestation of unity? And it's probably toward that person that you find most frustrating, the person you find most irritating. What Christian? Is it a spouse? Is it a relative? That you need to say, God, live your life through me. Live your unifying life through me so that I can demonstrate forbearance and love and patience so that you can live the life I can't live. And that will foster a greater community of unity. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.